right, good afternoon. If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, this morning we learned about Moses and the people of Israel and how they were saved and delivered through the Red Sea. And now we're going to learn about Moses again and someone who's better than Moses. Uh, so let's read. We're going to read Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. This is God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who had professed faith in Christ, but some of them had begun to waver. They had begun to turn their backs on Christ. And why was this? Why were some of the Hebrews doing this? Maybe it was because of suffering or persecution, and they were tired of this. They couldn't stand it. Or maybe some of them, obviously, as the writer to the Hebrews says later, they had a love of the Old Testament. And they were going back to it and forsaking Christ. Or some of them had become apathetic or indifferent to spiritual things. And and the writer to the, or the preacher to the Hebrews, calls his listeners to action over and over again. And he warns them of a very dangerous position. This is the position. To have professed that Christ is Lord, but then to turn your back on him. And he calls his listeners to hold fast, to stand firm, and to endure to the end. Well, things have not changed, have they? Uh, The problems that the Hebrews faced, we face today. Uh, There are so many people who have professed faith in Christ, but they haven't lasted. They've fallen away. They've Maybe you've heard this term recently. They've deconstructed their faith. Well, what is that really? That word really should be apostasy, right? That's what's really going on. They've turned their backs on Christ. I bet some of you know people who have done this. They've turned their back on the Lord. Or maybe maybe they're on the the process of turning. They're wavering. It's not sure which way they will go. And why do people do this? Why do people who have professed faith in Christ, why do they start to turn? Maybe it's because of peer pressure the spirit of our age, and they listen to it and they cave in. Uh, Maybe it's the love of the world and its passions. They've fallen into sin and they love it more than they love Christ. Or maybe indifference and apathy are very real in our world, are they not? Even among us, even among in my own heart, sometimes I grow apathetic. And maybe some of you are struggling. Maybe some of you are wavering. Maybe some of you, uh, the world and its desires are, are tugging at your sleeves and they're beckoning you to come, and you're struggling 
with that. Maybe you're tired of affliction and trials and suffering and you feel like just throwing the towel in. Maybe some of you are discouraged in your Christian commitment. Or maybe some of you, by God's grace, feel strong in the Lord. And praise the Lord for that. But sometimes you struggle. Sometimes you fail. And you need encouragement. Well, this passage here in front of us, wherever, whatever your, your problems are, is a beautiful anchor for our souls. Um, I'm calling this sermon, Consider Jesus. And if we can consider Jesus, this is the real source and the foundation to really grow in grace and to endure to the end. Uh, so, so what's some context? Uh, we're in Hebrews 3, so what happened in Hebrews 1 and 2? So in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author has made this argument about Jesus and angels. And he shows that Jesus is better than angels. That's what chapter 1 and, and parts of chapter 2 are all about. He quotes lots of the Old Testament to do this. But it's not only that Jesus is better than angels, it's that the message that Jesus has brought is better than the message that the angels have brought. Now you might be wondering, what message did the angels bring? I don't remember that. In the Bible, actually one of the roles of angels is to deliver God's law in the Old Testament. And you can see this um, earlier in Hebrews. Hebrews 2, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Uh, Stephen, when he's speaking in his speech in front of the Sanhedrin, tells the Pharisees that the angels delivered the law to them. And so this, it might seem strange to us, but angels, that was one of their roles. That was one of their jobs, was to deliver the law. Well, if the angels, what, what the author of Hebrews says, if the message that angels brought was reliable, and if you rejected the law of the Old Testament, you were judged, what would happen if you reject Christ and his message? You see, it's much more severe. And he says, uh, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The author then turns and he, and he, and he, he brings another reason why Christ is better. And it's because that of Christ's humility. This is a paradox. Because Christ became human, lower than the angels, he is therefore greater and better. Because it is through his death that he achieved salvation for us. And that is another reason why Christ is superior. And so we come to our text. This is chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I have three points today, um, hopefully briefly. And the first point is consider Moses. The second point is consider Jesus, and the last point is to consider yourselves. So that's what our outline will look like. So first of all, let's consider Moses. So first of all, in this, why would we consider Moses? Why would the author of the Hebrews, after talking about how Jesus is better than angels, then say Jesus was better than a man? That doesn't make sense. It seems like he's going backwards in his argument. Angels are high and celestial beings, or spiritual beings. So if Jesus is better than them, why would he go back to Moses and say that Jesus is better than Moses? Well, if we know that the, the Jewish mind at this time, this is very helpful for us. The Jews had a really high view of Moses, probably, well, yes, very much too high a view of Moses. Um, he was so highly revered by the Jews that, that one scholar says this, to the Jews, Moses was the greatest person who ever lived. In fact, many Jews saw Moses as equal to the angels, and some Moses was better than the angels. That's how high a view they had. And this was widespread in the first century among Jews. Think about it, though. There's some truth to that. 
Moses, at this point in history, had more direct contact with God than any other human being. He spoke to God face-to-face, it says. And so this is why the author of the Hebrews picks Moses as an example to show how Christ is better. After doing the angels, well, some thought that Moses was even better than the angels. Well, he will show that Jesus is greater than even Moses. The second thing to note is that Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Notice how the author here doesn't put Moses down. He actually shows that Moses was faithful. He was a faithful servant. However, this is qualified. Notice two things here. This is in verse 5. Moses was faithful in God's house and as a servant. Notice those two things. His role was in the house. Later it will show that Jesus' role was over the house. So notice that difference there. Also notice that Moses is called a servant. He's not the son or he's not the Lord or the master of the house. He's a servant within the house. So that's two important things. Now, the Greek word here is important. The normal Greek word for servant is doulos, which could also mean slave. It's someone forced to do something that they don't want. Well, this word is not here. The word is therapon, which means a willing volunteer who gives himself to serve. So it's, it's the only, only time it's used here in the New Testament. And so we see that Moses was a faithful servant. He diligently and faithfully served God in God's house. And, and this phrase that Moses was faithful in all God's house, this is an allusion to an Old Testament text. If you look at Numbers 12, this is when Miriam and Aaron speak out against Moses and say, um, they, they basically say, he's not the only prophet. Um, there, there must be other prophets. And they try to, they rebel against Moses. And God speaks and he says that Moses was faithful in all my house. And so this text in Hebrews is alluding to that Old Testament text. Moses was faithful. And to build our understanding of Moses' faithfulness, how was Moses faithful? Let's briefly look at his life. So he was raised not among the Jews. Where was he raised? He was raised in Pharaoh's household. At this time, Egypt was the most powerful nation in the whole world. And Moses was a prince of Egypt, literally had the most privileged position probably of almost any human on earth. But what does it say in Hebrews 11 about Moses? It says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. (laughs) Beautiful passage. You see that Moses chose, he 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 had a choice before him. He could either choose sin, the pleasures, all the power, all the the riches that he could ever want, or he could choose affliction with God's people. And he chose affliction because it says he was looking to the reward. Moses was a faithful servant. Also, Moses was chosen to be God's messenger to Pharaoh and to Egypt and to the people of Israel. Think about the power revealed through Moses in the ten plagues or in the Red Sea as we talked about this morning. He was a faithful servant to God in the midst of great power. Now, I know what you're all thinking. What about that time when he killed that guy? And he buried him in the sand. Or what about that time when he hit the rock with the staff? Well, this is a difficult passage here, but John Owen gives an answer, which I think is very good. He says that Moses in those instances failed personally as a believer 
but not ministerially in his position uh, in, in the house of Israel. So that's, that's interesting. Obviously, Moses was a sinful man, and he needed Christ just as much as we do. But in God's house, Hebrews says, he was a faithful servant. And time would fail us to talk more about all the times of how Moses was faithful. Think about him going through the wilderness for 40 years with all of the grumbling Israelites, and he was faithful to them. Um, So the third thing to note here is that Moses was a great prophet of God. Not only was he a faithful servant, he was also a great prophet. What's a prophet? A prophet is one that is appointed by God to speak for him to his people. And Moses was Israel's greatest prophet. He's called the lawgiver, right? It's a good title because God reveals his law through Moses to the people of Israel. And in Numbers 12, we see that Moses is the greatest prophet because in Numbers 12, that same passage I talked about earlier, God says, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. And so we can see that this prophet Moses spoke to God face to face. And this shows his supremacy over other prophets of the Old Testament. He was the mouthpiece of God to Israel. I'm reading through, I just finished Exodus in my my daily readings. There's a lot of legislation that is given through Moses, is there not? He he communicated the Ten Commandments to the people of God. Um, All of those laws about the priests and the tabernacle, he delivered all of these things. He oversaw them. He consecrated Aaron and the whole high priestly line. And through 40 years, (laughs) he led the wilderness generation until they had all died out except Joshua and Caleb. And the book of Deuteronomy is a sermon to those, the children of those wilderness wanderers in which he, again, is called Deuteronomy as second law. He gives the law again to the next generation. And in this, he acts as a great prophet of God. And what does it say at the end of Deuteronomy? It says, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was a faithful prophet. The last thing, very briefly, is that Moses was a priest before God. Now, this might seem strange as well. Aaron was the high priest, was he not? But Moses acted as a mediator, a priestly um, mediator between God and Israel. Think about all those times when Israel goes after other gods and, and God says, I will destroy them. And Moses says, please, God, according to your covenant, do not destroy your people. You see, he's acting somewhat, in some sense, as a priest. And so there, we have considered Moses, how he was a faithful servant, a great prophet, and somewhat a priest. Let's move on to our second point, which is consider Jesus. And our author compares Jesus to Moses, and he shows how in every way Jesus is better than Moses. And, and when this, the text says the word consider, if you told me to consider something, you might, I might casually think about it. That's not what we're supposed to do here. The word consider is to diligently think about, to set or fix your mind on something. And so as we consider Jesus, we need to be serious about this. And our text gives at least four reasons why Jesus is better or greater than Moses. Jesus, in the first place, is a greater prophet and a greater priest. Look at verse 1. 
Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. You might think that strange that, he, that Jesus is called an apostle here. It's actually the only time in the whole New Testament that Jesus is called apostle. But the word apostle, its basic meaning is really messenger or one who is sent. And sometimes it doesn't refer to the 12 apostles. It can refer to some, simply someone being sent or a messenger. And so we can see here, this is Jesus' prophetic work. He is the one sent by God. He is the messenger of God. He fulfills the role of a prophet. Now, how is Jesus a better prophet than Moses? Well, obviously, right in the beginning, Moses was a sinful man, and Jesus was a perfect man. So that's, that we can t- that's taken for granted here. But also, think about how earlier the, the, the message brought by Jesus was better than the message brought by angels. This is also true here. The message that Jesus brought is far better than the message brought by Moses. In Moses, there was types and shadows. There was the blood of bulls and goats. There was a covering of sin. There was a purifying of the flesh. But what do we see in Jesus, in his message of salvation? There There is the substance. There is the real thing. There is a purifying of the conscience, not just of the flesh. And there is forgiveness of sins in the court of heaven, not just on earth. And so we can see how Jesus is a better prophet than Moses. In verse 5, it also says that Moses testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Well, that's obviously speaking about Christ, is it not? And how Christ fulfilled everything Uh, about Moses and the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, In Deuteronomy 18, this is a wonderful passage to consider. Moses makes a prophecy, and he says, in some day, another prophet like me will arise among you. And we know that this is speaking about Jesus, because in Acts 3, Peter says so. He quotes Moses saying that and applies it to Christ. And so seeing with New Testament eyes, we can see that Moses prophesied about Jesus, he testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to say or make it seem like Moses' prophetic office and Jesus' prophetic office were somehow in conflict. They're not. They're, They're part of the same work of God. Jesus is the ultimate and the complete prophet of which Moses was a player. It also says here that Jesus is the high priest. He's the apostle, so he's the greater prophet. He's also the high priest. Now, if we want to learn more about Jesus being a high priest, we can read Hebrews 8, which I encourage you to do. Uh, It's great to meditate on that. But for now, it'll suffice just to say that Jesus, although Moses was somewhat of a priest, Jesus is an infinitely better high priest. As Isaac Watts wrote, I like this hymn, he said, The law by Moses came, but peace and truth and love were brought by Christ, a nobler name descending from above. By Moses came the law, by Jesus came peace and truth and love. We also see in the second place that Jesus had a greater mission than Moses. He had a greater mission. Look at verse 2. It says that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. Now, that speaks to Jesus' mission. He was appointed for a task or a mission. Both Moses and Jesus were faithful to the one who appointed them, being God. But the appointing of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, was infinitely greater than the mission that Moses had. You see, in the mystery of the Trinity, the Father sends the Son, 
on a mission. And that is, as Paul says in Galatians, that he was sent by the Father in the fullness of time to redeem those under the law. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem us, fallen mankind. This is what theologians call sometimes the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. And this is where the Father gives a mission to the Son and the Son fulfills the commitments. And this is the whole basis for our salvation. It's a wonderful truth, encouraging to study that. Our confession in chapter 8, paragraph 1 says this, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that language of choosing and ordaining is the same as appointing. Jesus was appointed. He was sent on a mission. And although Moses and Jesus were both faithful, Jesus' mission was far greater in scope and in power of what it actually accomplished. You see, Moses was called to bring the people out of Israel and to give the law. But Jesus was called to bring his people out of spiritual Egypt the kingdom of darkness and sin, and to save them and bring them to that heavenly promised land, which is not just Canaan, but heaven, to where God will dwell with them. And so we see here, again, how Jesus is greater than Moses. I'll move on. The third reason is that Jesus has a greater role in nature, a greater role in nature than Moses. Uh, Look at verses 3 and 4. There's this analogy of a house that's given. It says this, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Okay, so what is this house that's talked about here? Well, this is the people of God. This is God's people throughout all generations. We saw earlier how Moses was in the house, but now we see that Jesus is over the house. You see, that's a big difference. Moses is within the people of God, but Jesus is over the people of God. That is a vast difference in roles. And this analogy helps us see that while Moses was faithful, his part to play was so much smaller than Jesus. The Jews who thought that Moses was the greatest man ever to live needed to hear this, that Christ is better than any human being, even the greatest hero of the Old Testament. And don't we need to hear that sometimes too, brothers and sisters? Don't we make faithful men celebrities? That's not, that is not what we should do. We should use them and see them as telescopes that look to Christ, not to themselves. There's been great damage done in the church when we have glorified men. And so we see that Jesus is greater than Moses. You see, Moses was just a person within God's story, but Jesus is the maker of the stories. Now, here's just an aside. Notice that there's not two houses. There's one house. There's not, a Moses, there's not a house for Moses and the Jews in the Old Testament and another house for Christians in the New Testament. There's one house. There are not fundamentally two different groups of God's people. I'm speaking about dispensationalism here. This is a good passage. There is one house of God. Now, let's look at verse 4. This might seem kind of odd to us or out of place it might be in parentheses in some of your Bibles. Um, it's, a, it's an explanatory statement. It's a, it's a, it's a parenthetical statement. Um, here it talks about a house. Now, we could just take this literally. He says, if there's a house, it has a builder, right? Have you ever seen a house that was never built by someone? I would love to see this house. <laughs> All houses have builders. Uh, literally, the word building has the word builder in it. 
A building is built by a builder. (laughs) And we see in the second half is that who makes all things? Who's the builder of all things? God is the builder of all things. Now, you might have expected to see Jesus here. Why doesn't it say that Jesus is the builder of all things? Well, we see that there's not this great difference made between God and Jesus in their work in creation. Um, Earlier, what do we see in Hebrews 1? It says, God spoke to our father by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. You see, God the Father acts through God the Son in both creation and redemption. This is a pattern in Hebrews. What does John 1.3 say? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. When you go back and read Genesis 1.1, don't think it's just God the Father making all things. No, the Trinity is present in there. God the Father working through God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit makes all things. And then he does this with us in our hearts when he redeems us. And this is a clear reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. You see, Jesus is the builder of all things. And in this, he has a great, greater nature than Moses. Jesus has a greater role and a greater and a greater nature than Moses. Okay, the last thing is that Jesus was a faithful son. We already saw that Moses was called a servant, but now we see that Jesus is called the son. Think about this. If you were trying to get to the master of a house, and you're trying to talk to him to get his ear, would you go through a servant? You would meet with minimal success. But what if you go through the son, the relation of that master? Would not you have a much better and a direct access to that master. And that is the difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son. And so Jesus, as the son, is faithful. He is the great mediator between God and man. Isaac Watts says again, Amidst the house of God, their different works were done. Moses, a faithful servant, stood, but Christ, a faithful son. So how was Jesus faithful as a son? If you've ever read, um, so I call him Pastor Sam, but he's, he's Dr. Renahan to you all. Um, my, my pastor, Sam Renahan, and he wrote a book called The Mystery of Christ. And within, there's a chapter on the covenant of redemption. And he talks about how Jesus was faithful as a son. And I want to repeat some of these things. These are beautiful truths. God the Son willingly took up the mission given to him by his father. You think about it. When he was a kid, what did he tell Joseph and Mary? I must be about my father's business. How faithful was Jesus? How focused was he on his mission? He continued his mission through suffering and pain. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is part of his faithfulness as the son. How cruel he, he, he suffered at the hands of wicked men. Think about the unimaginable, the unimaginable suffering that he went through on the cross, bearing our sin. He was faithful. He was slain. But that's not the end of the story. This faithful son that Philippians 2 talks about, who humbles himself to the point of death, well, Jesus has exalted him, and Jesus has raised him, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does it say in Revelation? Why is Jesus worthy? It says, because he was slain. And therefore, he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so we have seen in all these ways how Jesus is better than Moses. Let's let's move on to the last point. 
We've considered Moses. We've considered Jesus. Let's consider yourselves or ourselves. And our text includes some truths and exhortations for us. First of all, you are part of God's holy family. You are part of God's holy family. Look at verse 1. What, are, what, is, what is the title that the author to the Hebrews tells his, this congregation of listeners? He calls them holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Let's unpack that. Remember that word holy that I talked about this morning? It means to set apart. Well, guess what? You are a holy brother or a sister in Christ. Now, how is that so? Well, in the Old Testament, only the high priest, after much preparation to make sure that he was set apart from the people, was able to go into the Holy of Holies, right? And only once a year. But now Christians are called holy. This is the greatness of Jesus over Moses and his economy. You see, you can enter into the presence of God through the righteousness of Christ, for your sin has been removed. You are holy. Here's what Owen says. He accounted them holy, not upon the account of an external separation, something outside, like the people of the Old Testament, but also of internal, real sanctification and purity. Have you considered the fact that you are a holy member of God's family? Now, does this mean that you're perfect? No. (laughs) This doesn't mean that you're perfect here in this life, but your record is perfect in heaven. Not only are we called holy, but we're also called brothers. That's a wonderful term. We don't want to just read through that and miss this. This is a beautiful truth. The author to the Hebrews is calling his, this congregation brothers. That's wonderful. We see that they are a part of God's family. And not only is there a horizontal aspect to this, we are in the same, we are siblings in God's family, but we also can call Christ our brother. It says in Hebrews 2.11 that Jesus, after assuming humanity, his incarnation, it says that he was not ashamed to call them brothers. We are brothers with Jesus Christ. He is our brother. Jesus says in Mark 3, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You see, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you are part of God's family. Also, it says that we share in a heavenly calling. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means. Some people say that heavenly calling is our election in eternity of how God has called us. Some people say that it's the actual applying of this calling to us in our lives. But John Owen, I think I quote a lot of John Owen because he's a wonderful commentary on Hebrews. He, he tends to go this way. He says that this heavenly calling refers to the end or the purpose to which we are called. We have a heavenly calling. And within the context of the Hebrews who live in a broken world and are struggling to endure, it's probably this, is it not? That we, our purpose here as holy brothers is to heaven. We have a heavenly calling. And if you are truly a holy brother or sister and you have a heavenly calling, how should that affect your life? We need to remain focused on what really matters. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to consider Jesus. Don't be distracted by the things of the world, the passions of the flesh, the pride of life, the lies of the devil. We should live up to this title of holy brothers. If we are accounted as righteous before God, then we should try to live that way in the world. All right, let me give you some ways. This is the second second sub-point here. Some ways that you can consider Jesus. First of all, we need a robust and accurate knowledge of Christ. 
We need a sound theology about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can you do this? Study and meditate those passages that speak of Jesus. Read the Gospels over and over. Read Paul's epistles. Also, read the great discussions in church history over the nature and the work of Jesus. These help us, keep us from error. Uh, Read our confession, chapter 8, and read it devotionally. That's a wonderful practice to do. We should not be intellectually lazy when it comes to knowing about our Savior. Whatever gifts and faculties that God has given you, use them. Secondly, we need to know Christ better. Now, you might have said, you just said that, Hayden. Well, it's not enough to know things about Jesus Christ. We must know him. And there's a big difference between the two. You see, it says that the demons know much more than we know, but they tremble. And so we need to actually know Christ Why do you think we struggle so much in our relationship with Christ? Maybe it's because we are practical atheists. We confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, but we don't live like it. And so we need to not just know about our Savior, but we need to know him. John Brown, a commentator, writes this. It is because we think so little and to so little purpose on Christ that we know so little about him, that we love him so little, trust in him so little, so often neglect our duty and are so much influenced by things seen and temporal and so little by things unseen and eternal. We must know Christ better. Thirdly, we need to cultivate intimacy with Christ through prayer. When's the last time you prayed? One of the issues in our day is busyness. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has a good book called Crazy Busy. And isn't, it feels like that to me, how we've just become so busy. But this is not an area in which we should rush things. Do we rush our time with God in prayer? One scholar said this, Holy living is not abrupt living. No one who hurries into the presence of God is content to remain for long. Those who hurry in, hurry out. I feel like through even my personal experience, I could confirm that. Uh, D.A. Carson says, pray until you pray. And we need to do this better. We need to pray confidently, and we need to pray often. We need to pray every day. Notice in the Bible how there's instructions for us to pray every day, but there's actually not instructions for us to read the Bible every day. Now, I'm not, we should have our devotions. It's very important. But prayer is very important to the Christian walk. We shouldn't neglect this. Fourth, uh, we need to value and attend to the means of grace. If you want to know Christ better, come to church. Be with the people of God. Worship corporately with one another. In the preaching, we are given the word. In the Lord's Supper, we are given the sacrament. Um, I love the Lord's Supper. We, we, we do it every week at our church, which I think you guys do it here, right? Um, and so I've been really, really blessed by this. Uh, Thomas Boston has a little book on the Lord's Supper, which I would very highly recommend. And he lists these comforts to you as you partake of the Lord's Supper. Here's how you can consider Jesus. In partaking of the Lord's Supper, you can contemplate the glorious sacrifice of Christ and the infinite merit to you. You can also signify the bread and wine. You can lay claim to all the heavenly privileges as one who is a Christian, and you can see in his blood shed for you your comfort against death. And, and there's much more. This is a wonderful thing. So attend to the means of grace. Fifthly, and lastly, we need to depend fully on the Son. Many times, sin in our lives can be very discouraging, can it not be? In your walk as a Christian, have you grown weary? Has the weight of indwelling sin bore you down? 
Are you discouraged? Well, the great medicine for your soul is two words. Consider Jesus. Remember that he was faithful. It's not about how you view him, but it is how he views you. And that's a big difference in our assurance. And you know, many times in my own walk, when I'm struggling with sin, I have looked to the wrong source for strength. I've looked to myself, my own reason, my own plans, even spiritual disciplines, which are good. But the secret to growing in grace is to consider Jesus, not to consider ourselves. We will fail over and over again. And so we must truly depend on the Son if we were to see any true growth in holiness. The last thing in considering ourselves, this is our third point, is to hold fast your confidence and boast in your hope. Look at verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, that might seem a little odd to you as well. That's a conditional statement. You are his house if you hold fast your confidence and your boasting and your hope. Is that saying that by being confident and boasting in your hope, that saves you? No, it's not. (laughs) But if you're a Christian, must you hold fast your confidence and boast in your hope? Yes. And and maybe some of us are 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 struggling with this kind of conditional statements, but read Hebrews. It's there's all over the place. There's these conditional statements. Maybe it's because we grew up or are from legalistic backgrounds where people abuse these kinds of statements. But this is God's word, and we must listen. Since you are the house of God, this demands that you hold fast and stand firm. Doug Phillips says, There is no conflict between the teaching that emphasizes that all true believers are safe in the hands of God and the teachings that Christians must persevere in their faith. You see, we are preserved, but we also must persevere. And both are true. There are many Christians who say this, I made a profession of faith and I was baptized, so now I'm good. That's so, that's so dangerous. Your profession of faith is not what saves you. It is only the merits of Christ that saves you. And we must go to Christ over and over again in our lives and not just see that one moment where we made a decision to be the whole basis and foundation of our salvation. It is upon Christ and Christ alone. Also, remember who's being addressed here. The the author to the Hebrews is speaking to a group of Christians. He doesn't know who's really saved and who isn't. Some may end up, may manifest to the church that they never were Christians. You see, the writers of the Hebrews cannot read the heart, and neither can we. We can't see each other and read each other's hearts and know who really is saved and who isn't. And the author to the Hebrews looks at this Christian community as a whole, and he does not want to give false hope to those who have made a profession of faith. Because a profession of faith, again, is not what saves us. It is the blood of Christ, the merits of Christ, and we need to be faithful in our lives. A Christian who professes faith and is never faithful is not a Christian. We must take our sanctification seriously. Now, I don't mean to frighten us by this. I don't mean to frighten us, but it should sober us and it should encourage us to be faithful. We are told to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is wonderful. We can boast about something. Boasting isn't always wrong. We can boast in what? Christ, for he is our hope. If we boast in ourselves, we are great fools. But if we boast in the Son, that's something worthy of boasting in. And we live in a time where endurance is not well known. You know the difference between a sprint and a marathon? It's very, very different. You, compl- you train very differently for the two events, right? And many, the Christian life is not a sprint. Those who sprint, 
the Christian life are like that seed in the parable of the sower who shoot up very fast, but then when suffering and persecution come, they fade. Don't give up hope. The, the Christian life is often mundane and difficult. That's normal. <laughs> if you're struggling in these things, have hope. If we are to be faithful as Christians, we, we need to consider Jesus who was faithful, and this needs to be our foundation. And so we have seen that Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. He was a great prophet of the Lord. Yet we've seen how Christ is a greater prophet and priest. He had a greater mission, a greater role, a greater nature, and he is the faithful son, not a servant, who accomplished salvation for his sheep. And we have considered ourselves, my friends, I encourage you to remain faithful, to endure, to look to Christ for your source for all of your growing in grace. And my prayer is that in the busyness and the hard times and the good times and the times of mourning and the times of feasting, whatever God has given you in his providence, that you would consider Jesus and that you would cling to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this book of Hebrews and its beautiful and wonderful truths about the Son. We look at ourselves and we find that we look to the wrong sources, that we do not consider Jesus, that we are so prideful, that we look to ourselves, we boast in our own strength. And Lord, I pray that we would look to Christ, that we would trust in him. Lord, I pray if there is someone here right now, Father, who grows weary, I pray that you would encourage them by considering Jesus. If there are those here, Lord, who have a false assurance of faith, I pray that you would save them, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who are strong in your faith, but that, that they need encouragement, that this, this Jesus, this Son, would encourage them. I pray, Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.